0: Welcome to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. This special series features some of Milwaukee's most distinguished leaders. They'll share how they overcame challenges, developed their skills, and achieved success, so you can gain insight and inspiration. And now, Leadership is in Session.
1: Welcome everybody. We are back in the studio today for another episode of the Athena Communications Masterclass Leadership is in Session. And today we are joined with our friend and colleague Teague Wheelie-Smith of the Community Development Alliance. Teague, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We are thrilled to have you here today to talk to us about your role in your goal of advancing racial equity through homeownership. So as I mentioned, you are with the Community Development Alliance, or CDA, for which you are the Chief Alliance Executive. And your stated goal is advancing racial equity by providing a quality, affordable home for every Milwaukeean. Talk to us about the CDA and this work.
0: When I think about leadership, there was a conference that I was at where I heard this wonderful story. And it was a story of an organizer doing labor work in South America, which you could imagine is very tough to do Mm. in an area ripe with conflict, having to deal with multiple parties in different sectors. And someone was interviewing this organizer and asked the question, how do you do it? And the response was, that there are two different types of leaders. There are leaders that think everything is a chess match and everything is in black and white. And in order to win, you have to take something from your opponent and make it yours, which is the way the game of chess is played. But there's another type of leader and that type of leader, instead of seeing chess pieces, sees puzzle pieces. And everybody that you're working with is a different puzzle piece Mm. and has a different piece of the puzzle that's a different color, shape, and size And your role as a leader is to try to bring everybody together and complete a puzzle. And so the work that we do at CDA is we're trying to solve a puzzle. And the puzzle we're trying to solve is that in order to achieve racial equity in Milwaukee, we need systems to support 32,000 new black and Latino homeowners. And that's not gonna happen overnight. These problems are centuries in the making. It's a time in our country's history where black people specifically were considered property and weren't allowed to own property all the way through Reconstruction and Jim Crow and all of the laws prohibiting black families from owning property that also applied to other groups of color. And we are now at a point where we need to address those historical harms and the current harms by advancing racial equity, by providing a quality, affordable home for every Milwaukeean. And the reason we do that, why housing is so important, because it has this tremendous impact on people's lives. We measure this through something called the social determinants of health, which is a very nerdy word mm-hmm. to say that your access to health care matters just as much as your access to housing and access to education and food and all those important factors. And we really consider housing as the primary social determinant of health. And the data and research backs that up is that if you want to work on education, you can actually improve the dropout rate of your school system if every student in the class is in stable housing. You can improve crime in neighborhoods if you have invested in the physical infrastructure of housing to the tune of reducing even homicide rates by 20%. And we always thought the American dream was to get a good job and then get a good home. But research suggests that the path also goes the other direction, that you need to be in a stable home in order to take advantage of job opportunities. And ultimately, we measure this by impact on health. And people in stable housing have nearly a 20% better health outcomes So that's the why of Brown housing and why we focus on housing. And then how we do it is we put that puzzle together. We bring in the banks, we bring in philanthropy, we bring in residents, we bring in public officials, and we do planning together to create new systems to address these historical harms. And that creates some wonderful what's and the what's we work on are things like an acquisition fund to combat predatory acquisition, the construction of about 170 new single family entry level homes for black and Latino families and increasing access to credit.
1: So you mentioned we and you've mentioned data. Data is very important to your work. Who is the we? How did the CDA come to be?
0: There's this really wonderful principle called collective impact, and there's a group called the collective impact forum that has a lot of research on the impactfulness of collective impact. And they had a really amazing study done in 2020, which looked at 25 different communities that were having success. And in those communities, only five of them could the success be explained by the work of the coalition and if we were working on wages for the last few years, for example, we could declare victory as a coalition, but it would have nothing to do with what we're doing locally. We'd have to do with these larger socioeconomic trends. But in these five communities that the Collective Impact Forum researched, they identified some core things that those groups did that other people did not do. And so they were able to have success despite the national trends. And the two things that research suggests you focus on is a common agenda and a backbone organization to keep the momentum going. So when I say we, I'm referring to the backbone organization. So the backbone organization is the organization I work for, which is the Community Development Alliance. And it's actually about 10 years old, but for the first decade of its life, it matured slowly like other organizations, and it didn't have paid staff. And so it was focused on communication with one another to try to find synergies But it wasn't until they put a stake in the ground to say, we need a common agenda and we need a common agenda around housing. And that started to expand who the we was. Initially around the table for the last 10 years was philanthropy and the Department of City Development at the city of Milwaukee and some other partners that were a part of that. But there was a commitment that to expand the we. So when current Mayor Johnson was the council president, he put into the budget that the city of Milwaukee needed a housing plan and directed city staff to work with the community development alliance to develop a joint plan because he saw for too long the city of milwaukee would have a plan trying to leverage philanthropy and philanthropy would have a plan trying to leverage banks and banks would have a plan to leverage the city and nobody was talking to each other at least not in a meaningful way to create that common agenda and then the county stepped in as well and so through a year-long planning process at the end of the day, the city council adopted the same plan as the County Board of Supervisors, the same plan as the board of directors of the Zilber Family Foundation and the Greater Milwaukee Foundation, the same plan that it was adopted by Habitat and Axford Housing and several others. And so we have a core alliance of about 20, 25 organizations from the public sector, private sector, implementers, resident groups, all working together on that same common agenda.
1: So. You've referenced a lot of pretty substantial and highly regarded, not only organizations, but people in the city, but you yourself have had a pretty multifaceted career, and you've worked in a lot of different capacities. How did you find your way to lead the CDA?
0: Yeah, what really drives me is I want to make Milwaukee the best place on planet Earth, particularly for those families that have been left out of the larger social, political, and economic systems. And I've really done that my entire career. So I was raised in Milwaukee. I was born in Madison. But before I was one year old, my family moved to Milwaukee because we have a multiracial family. And my sister was adopted from Brazil and is a black woman. And my parents didn't want to raise a black woman in an area that was still segregated. So they found the very diverse neighborhood of Sherman Park. And now I have four sisters, three of which are black, and we have continue to have a multiracial family. So I'm reminded of the work of ta Coates, who wrote some incredible things, but particularly Water Dancer, which is mm-hmm. his piece of fiction which was about the abolitionist movement during slavery, there's a really critical point in the book that says there's this conflict between the white abolitionists and black folks that are trying to free their own family. And the difference between the two, as spoken through the main character, is that one, the white abolitionists were fighting out of guilt, embarrassment, Whereas the black folks fighting against slavery were fighting out of love because this was their family. Mm. And that brings a whole other set of urgency to the work that you do. So growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, going up in predominantly black schools, having more black siblings in my family than white siblings puts a certain perspective on the work that I do as a white man. I need to have a sense of urgency and need to fight these issues out of love and not out of white guilt. And so that's what really drives me and drives a sense of urgency and passion is that this is affecting real people. And every day that somebody's paying $1,200 a month in rent, to help support an outside landlord versus spending $1,000 a month on themselves and building their home equity, that puts that family further into the hole. And so it's that background and that passion that I try to bring to the table to serve our neighborhoods.
1: I know that to be so true of you leading with love, leading with passion, but ultimately so much of your work is grounded in data and facts. Talk to us about the state of Milwaukee homeownership. If you are a person of color, if you are a black Milwaukeean or a Latino Milwaukeean.
0: Yeah. What's really important in a planning process is that you do talk to people to get their stories as a form of data and that qualitative data. And then also matching that with the quantitative data that is out there. So we use a process called GARE, the government alliance on race and equity to develop our plan. And they have a toolkit that prompts you to ask some really important questions because the reality is there's no such thing as a racially neutral policy. You're either reinforcing the inequitable status quo. You're making racial equity worse, or you're making racial equity better. And that's the kind of lens that we need to put on every kind of policy decision that we make. And let me give you an example. So in Milwaukee, we are second worst in Black home ownership for major cities across the United States. And that has to do with our history in Milwaukee and when housing was developed. 95% of the housing that was developed in Milwaukee was developed prior to 1968, when it was still legal to discriminate against black and Latino families. And then once the Fair Housing Act got passed and you could no longer do that, we literally stopped building housing in the city of Milwaukee. And the only place you could build was in the suburbs, which required that you build a 2,500 square foot house that would cost you $400,000, which of course black and Latino families couldn't afford at the time and most can't afford today. And so it's that history that we are running into And that history is very different from the history of my family, right? My family built intergenerational wealth by my grandfather, who built a home in Madison, Wisconsin, in the 1950s for about $12,000 at a time when the county median income was $6,000. So in our country's history, we figured out how to build entry-level housing for single-income-earning families for two years' worth of salary – And of course, that house is now worth over $300,000. My grandfather upgraded his home several times. He paid for my undergraduate education. He helped my parents out with their down payment assistance. So I grew up in a home that our family owned, and he did that based off of a system. And that system was the VA loans that were available to him as a veteran. And we know the discriminatory practices of VA loans. I can tell you the story of friends of mine who also had veterans in their family that didn't get those loans, frankly, because they were black. Mm. And this is the history that we're dealing with and the numbers we are dealing with. So we need systems to support 32,000 new black and Latino homeowners. That's not going to happen overnight. But what data shows you, and this is the example I want to share, is that there's a lot of thought process for people that don't look at data to say, well, let's just focus on higher earning black and Latino families. And if you're trying to hit 32,000 homeowners in the black and Latino community, and you focus on families that are making more than 50,000 a year that aren't already homeowners, you will never get to 32,000. You'll be lucky if you get to 5,000. And those folks certainly need to be served. But the reality is that the biggest racial equity decision that you can make is the income level that you focus on. And if you focus on families that are making less than $50,000, you will have a positive reduction in racial equity gaps. If you tar- start to focus on families that are making 50, 80, $100,000, most of those families are white. And so you could actually make racial equity gaps worse if you focus on those families. We would have no idea of that if we didn't focus on the data if we just focused on what people thought we could have easily developed a strategy that said let's focus on black and latino families and making a hundred thousand dollars a year because they will be more eligible for loans and that's true But because of that, there's already a higher home ownership percentage for families that are making a hundred thousand and they absolutely need to continue to be served and provided education and assistance. And we don't want to leave them out, but that's not the systematic gap. The systematic gap is that because we have forced people into rental situations. Even if they are making a living wage, they are not going to ever be homeowners because they're paying so much in rent. So that's how influential data can be as it influences strategy. And there are dozens of other examples. The size of homes we build. There was a sense that we should be building 1,500 square foot homes because that's what's being built in the suburbs and otherwise. Well, if you actually talked with residents, they just want a stable place to live mm-hmm. that they can call their own. And it turns out that the average home in in Milwaukee is a thousand square feet, right? And so if we continue to develop strategies that are building houses that are too big and too expensive, we will never have an impact on racial equity.
1: Speaking of impact, what is your impact so far? Talk to us about the successes CDA has had in collaboration with all of your partners. That is truly changing the lives of our Milwaukee neighbors.
0: So the city of Milwaukee housing plan, county housing plan, the collective affordable housing plan was passed in late 2021. And that was a really important time because it was also the time of the American Rescue Plan Act or ARPA that people may have heard of. So we had once in a generation resources coming in and it was important we had a plan to be able to do that. And at the same time, there was a recognition from national funders as well to focus on racial equity, realizing the gaps and banks' role in historical gaps as well. So 2022, we spent fundraising, and we raised $24 million over a 12-month period to start to implement these efforts. And now in 2023, we're starting to see the fruits of that labor So one of the big strategies is turning vacant lots into first-generation homes, because that's what people need is access to entry-level homes that aren't getting built by the market. And we have funding, and we've started to break ground on 170 new single-family homes to be built in the city of Milwaukee. Several of those are in the King Park or Midtown neighborhood through Habitat for Humanity. Others are in partnership with daycares as a tool to continue to recruit and retain early childhood educators. And so that's been a big victory. For the first time, we are starting to see single-family homes be built at scale in the city of Milwaukee. Similar to that, we need to figure out how to build better, smarter, faster, and greener. In Milwaukee, the building season, if you're lucky, is about eight months. So we That's need right. to move as much of the building process indoors as possible. So we've been working with a local construction firm that manufactures wood products. If you've ever stayed sat in a state office chair at the Capitol, or if you've been at a fancy hotel and seen the woodwork, it was probably produced in the 30th Street Corridor in Milwaukee at a place called Lang Brothers Carpentry. Well, they want to help. They see all these vacant lots around them. And so they've adapted their equipment to start cutting the framing for housing so that it can be built indoors. And instead of on site taking four to six weeks to frame a house, we think we can get it done in four to six days. So we're partnered with VSCDC, which is a Latina led organization on the south side that is producing three model homes to test this new construction technology. And we think we'll be the first in the country to do it. The second major strategy has been to combat predatory acquisition. What I mean by that is that after the 2008 foreclosure crisis, there were low property values and limited access to credit. So there were these private equity firms across the country that saw this as an opportunity to come in and sweep up and buy homes from homeowners that were struggling uh, or homeowners that were aging out of their homes or whatever the case may be. And it 's spread like a virus we 've been tracking this since two thousand and seventeen, and at that time there are about one hundred and fifty portfolio sales, meaning multiple homes being sold from one investor to another and that 's a critical measurement because no homeowner can buy five homes, keep one for themselves, and sell the other four. And so it used to be 150 a year. It's now 750 a year. Wow. And this is largely the result of three private equity firms that have come to the city of Milwaukee. In 2017, they own about five properties. They now own 1,400 properties. And when they come in, they extract rent and they permanently exclude these single family homes and duplexes from homeowners, which who they're built for. That's how our city was built. Homeowners built these. And they've been in homeowners' hands until slowly after the 1960s. And then very expeditiously investors started stepping up properties in the 2010s. So we've set up a fund to compete with them. So we've raised $8 million in partnership with Axe Housing to create the Axe Homeownership Fund. So now when there's a portfolio sale of a landlord selling 5, 10, 15, 20 properties, there's somebody that can act on behalf of the homeowners, buy those 15 properties, and split them up and sell them to homeowners, which no outside investor would ever do. We need somebody locally fighting on behalf of homeowners. They've purchased their first 10 homes, and now there are starting to be homeowners in those homes that would have been renters before. And then the final strategy has been to increase down payment assistance and homebuyer counseling. So we have about 2,000 families a year that are supported through homebuyer counseling, and about 600 families every year, Black and Latino families, are getting the inventory and the credit that they need to purchase a home. That's the number we need to focus on. That number's at 600 right now. Uh, We need to grow that 10% every year until we get to 1,000 homeowners a year. And so that's what we're working on. Uh, We're incredibly grateful for the Wells Fargo Foundation that contributed seven and a half a million dollars out of that 24 million towards the efforts that uh, I've just mentioned. We have the Greater Milwaukee Foundation, Silver Family Foundation, Northwestern Mutual Foundation, Bader Philanthropies, MGIC, BMO Bank, Chase Bank, Huntington Bank. You start to get the picture of all the people that are collectively putting their money together, because no one person can do this by themselves. And we're starting to see those new homeowners in their new homes or in their homes that they're buying through the acquisition fund, which is incredibly rewarding.
1: What are you hearing from homeowners in response to these efforts?
0: Yeah, so all of the planning efforts are rooted in resident-based plans. We've had resident-based planning funded through the city of Milwaukee and foundations for years and there's been leaders in this community and developing resident-based plans. The issue is that these plans often are never presented to be officially adopted by the city or the county or the foundations or the housing providers. And that's the difference of the plan that we're doing is we're collecting all of those great resident plans, putting them into one plan and working from that common agenda. And we wanna to continue to be leaders in resident collaboration. And we use the term collaboration intentionally. There's a scale of collaboration that starts out with informing people or PRing or trying to persuade people. And that's not what we do. We're here to collaborate and implement the ideas of residents. And if you read these resident-based plans, they are screaming for homeownership. And they are screaming for accomplices to come and help execute the resident's vision. And so that's what we're here to do is to listen and collaborate and take plans back to them as if we're the architect, right? Like when you have a homeowner that comes in and says, I want you to build me a home. You just don't go build the home. You design the home, you design the solution, and then you present it back to them and say, did we get this right? They tweak it and then you build it. And so that's what we have going on right now. We've taken residents through the factory that's in their own neighborhood that mm-hmm. they didn't know existed, where the housing is going to be produced, and they see people from the neighborhood working on those housing. We have a dollhouse version of the model homes that my colleague Cordella Jones, who is our resident collaboration director, has in the back of her vehicle at any given time and goes out and asks people how many bedrooms, where should it be, et cetera, to gain a sense of home ownership, of community ownership, right? That this is something that we are doing, not that it is being done to us, is really where we want to leave that. We've gotten incredible support from residents, incredible support from the alderpersons and county supervisors in the area, particularly Alderman Coggs, Alderman Stamper. The two of those together have about 90% of the vacant lots in the city. There's certainly other folks that have been very supportive at both the city and county to get these things executed.
1: I want to go back to one word you used, and that was accomplice. So you and I have had a discussion about the difference between, say, an ally, and accomplice, but you're very intentional with the use of that word. Why is that? What's the difference?
0: Yeah, when I was at Milwaukee County, which I was the chief operating officer there, I was at the county for a total of about eight years, and we were the first county, first municipality in the country to declare racism a public health crisis and start to build a strategic plan around it. And we invested heavily in racial equity training through groups like Gare and others. And in the racial equity world, those terms actually mean something different because an ally is somebody that supports you and supports your ideas in theory, as long as it doesn't cost them anything. Mm. An accomplice is when you are willing to put something on the line to say, I'm willing to give something up to do something that you've asked me to do. And there's an incredible visual Of the difference between the two. I think it was in Mississippi, there was a group that was determined to take down, physically take down the Confederate flag at the state house. And it was very important that action actually got done by part of the black coalition and done by a black person because it was something that they did and they planned, but they needed help. And so they called it an accomplice. And if you watch that video online, what you will see is a white man at the bottom of that flagpole shielding that woman from police. And he was willing to go to jail and risk his liberty. He wasn't just an ally. He was an accomplice. He was putting his own safety on the line, his own liberty on the line. And that's what we need to do for these neighborhoods. That it's not just good enough to say, hey, I support what you're doing. Count me in as an ally. That's not helpful. What we need is accomplices. Somebody that's willing to say that I have something that I am willing to give up in order to make this happen. I have time. I have connections. And I am going to use that political capital to do policy change in the city. I have money. I have a house. I have other things that I can give to this effort. And I have my family connections, and I'm willing to use everything that I have in order to support the vision of the residents. It's not coming in and telling residents what should be done. That's where it comes in as accomplice. We're not the lead here. The residents are the lead. They know what their communities need, but what they also need is an accomplice. And it's a word that shocks some people because it's this concept of we hear accomplice and we think immediately of some sort of criminal activity. Well, that's the beautiful thing about tools is that Mm -hmm. they can be used for good or bad. And the words of the incredible John Lewis, we need to get in good trouble and we need to be an accomplice and put something on the line, not just be an ally in words only.
1: Well, I want to end there because you've given us so much to think about, Teague. You have really inspired all of us, certainly setting a very complex stage, simplifying things people need to know. And I want to thank you for always getting in good trouble on behalf of Milwaukee and for potential future homeowners. So thanks, Teague.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. Be sure to catch all eight enlightening episodes. And don't forget to connect to On the Edge of Equity with Tammy Belton Davis, available wherever you get your podcasts.